So we're working on some new technology this morning. So uh, if anything messes up, it's not the operator. It's the technology's fault. Okay, so there is a way for actually us to run everything that's up there on the computer off of my phone and scroll through this stuff. And Stephen's not here this morning. And so that's what we've been doing. And I asked somebody to run it during my sermon for me because it would be miserable if I was up here trying to swipe and read at the same time and everything. So um, it lags, I've noticed. As I was doing the music, it lags a lot. So just show some patience if anything happens. It's, it's not anybody's fault. We're still working through some kinks and things like that of trying to figure out the best way to work it. Um, but anyway... We are going to continue in our series in the Gospel of John. We're actually going to start kind of a a three-part series today. As you can see, the title up there, um, the very beginning part, is Fickle Faith. So we're actually going to start a three-part series on fickle faith. And then there's going to be three different descriptions that we'll see what this looks like played out as we go through the rest of John chapter 8. So let's pray together as we jump in. Father, we, we are thankful for... The fact that you have spoken to us in your word, that you have made yourself known in Jesus, and that by the Spirit you have made yourself known through the recording of Scripture. So this morning, may our hearts be ready to receive your word. May we approach this not just as any ordinary book that we could just take some sort of practical random life application from, but may we see this as your holy word, that this is you, the God of the universe, speaking to us, specifically this morning in the words of of your son, Jesus. So may our hearts respond appropriately to your word. May our ears hear. May our hearts grow in our affections for you. And may we apply it to our daily life. Not just that it's a good idea to nod our heads about on Sunday, but that it's something that actually means something for our lives. Means something every day for us when we wake up. Help us to remember that. And may you speak to us by your spirit this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I did my undergrad degree in the city of Chicago at Moody Bible Institute, and while I greatly enjoyed my experience there, I had a major frustration while I was there. My major frustration, and and at least on my campus, was either discussing or watching the NFL with my fellow students. And it wasn't because there were people from so many different locations that nobody was united. It was just everybody against everybody, but it was quite the opposite, actually. I was amazed at how many people, upon stepping upon the campus in the city of Chicago, instantaneously became Chicago Bears fans. It didn't matter if they were completely devoted to another team the rest of their life. It didn't matter if they didn't know a thing about football previously in their life. Everybody was a Bears fan automatically. And what's worse, the moment they leave campus after graduation, there's no mention of the Bears ever again. 
they move on to another team, or they go back to their old team, or they go back to supporting no team at all. Now, I know the NFL is nothing to get that upset about. It's awfully petty, right? But it was the principle, the fact that there was a desire to immediately change allegiance just because of the environment that you were in. Some people may call this being fickle, right? We call people fickle if they jump from one thing to the next quite quickly and can't seem to be loyal to any one thing. So that's why this morning we start that three-part series about fickle faith. We have Jews who claim to believe in Jesus, but Jesus is going to engage them in conversation the rest of chapter 8, and in three different ways he's going to prove to them that their faith is not authentic, that their faith isn't actually real, that those who say they believe but really don't follow it up in a number of different ways, we'll see, then they really don't believe. Our first conversation today is about slavery versus freedom. Those who really do believe in Jesus stick with Jesus and find themselves free from their sin. But those whose faith is fickle... They remain slaves because their commitment to Jesus is only temporary. As we study this passage this morning, ask yourself, is your faith one that has found freedom, or is it one that only seems to really believe in Jesus when it's convenient for you? John chapter 8, I'm going to start in verse 30. As he was saying these things... Many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So we see right from the get-go, Jesus really narrows in on a specific group of people in this conversation. Right? Verse 31 tells us that Jesus directs these next words specifically to those who had supposedly believed in him. Right? Verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. And now he also begins to use this slavery freedom language that we haven't seen before. He makes it clear that there is freedom for those who abide in Jesus' word. And this is what we see ultimately explained in this conversation, is what this freedom really looks like. Notice, right at the beginning, Jesus makes a distinction. Verse 31, he tells us, 
If he says, if they abide in his word, then they are truly my disciples. So as Jesus comes to address those who claim that they believe, his first words reveal that simply claiming belief does not prove that someone is a true disciple. It's actually possible to claim this, but still be a false disciple. It's important for us to realize this as we look at how these people respond. Because we need to hold it up for ourselves as a mirror to say, does this sound like my faith? Do I look like these Jews? Or am I responding in the way that Jesus describes what a true disciple looks like? In these first couple verses, we see three particular realities for those who are true disciples. First, true disciples abide in Jesus' word. Now, we've already seen to, seen to some extent what this looks like in a disciple's life. If you remember back in chapter 6, right, Jesus comes to his 12, which is really 11, because we know Judas is to be excluded. He doesn't last. His faith isn't real. And he, so he comes and he, he asks them if they want to leave him after a whole bunch of people have left him. And, and they say, we have nowhere else to go. You alone have the words of eternal life. They have made themselves abide in Jesus' word. They're not letting go of Jesus' word. They're saying there is nowhere else to go but in Jesus' word. In chapter 4, we saw the same thing, right? The woman at the well heard Jesus' word and went and spread it to everybody. She believed it and then spread it to everybody in Samaria that she could possibly find. But not everybody responds this way. Right? We saw, again, in chapter 6, while the disciples say, you alone have the words of eternal life, we have a, a whole group, up to thousands of people who are talking to Jesus, who walk away from Jesus because of his words. And then we saw just last week in chapter 8, that the words of Jesus are doubted by the Pharisees, even by some of these people that supposedly just believed by the end, last week they were saying, who do you think you are to tell us that we're going to die in our sin? So what we see here, the point that Jesus seems to be making is, time will tell. These people claiming beliefs have only claimed belief just minutes before, it seems. And so Jesus is now directing the conversation towards them, saying, Time will tell if you actually abide in my word. Because fickle faith ends up abandoning Jesus' word. All of us have seen some sort of element of this in our own lives, haven't we? Does anybody have a friend still to this day that was your friend in elementary school? Someone that you still keep in contact with? Someone you still talk to? Does anybody have a have someone that you thought was a friend in high school or college that you no longer talk to? Only time tells who's true and who's not. It's the same thing here. Jesus is saying, just minutes before you said you believed, time will tell whether you actually abide or not. Let's sit here for just a moment longer. The test that proves this, the test that proves whether they remain or not, is whether they're abiding, whether they're, the word actually means to remain, 
right? There's this sense of commitment that these words actually consume these people's lives. It's not, Jesus is not just telling these people, if you continue to claim you believe to the end, you're actually my disciple. He's saying, if you let my words consume your life, direct your life, guide your life, define your life, that's what it means to have his word abide. It's the fact that our purpose in life, our desires in life, need to be determined by Jesus' words. Elsewhere, Jesus illustrates it as, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross, right? So to abide in his word means you're giving up your whole life in order to submit to Jesus, because he is the only one in whom there is truth. And that's what we see to be the next reality. So first, true believers abide in Jesus' word. Second, those who abide in Jesus' word, it says in verse 32, they will know the truth. The reason why I wanted to settle just for a moment on what it means to abide, to remain, is because we could interpret this know the truth very incorrectly. Right? We could... We could think that Jesus is just saying, well, as long as you can identify who I am, as long as you can say, sure, he's sent by God, sure, he's the Messiah, he is the Son of God, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the Lord, as long as we can intellectually agree with that, then you must be fine. You know the truth. But that's not all that he's saying here. To abide in this truth is not just to cognitively know it. I think it includes knowing it, I think it includes the mental aspect, but it's more than that. It's only when we take the truth that we know and surrender ourselves to that truth that we see what true faith actually looks like, which leads us to the last reality Jesus describes for his disciples, for true disciples. As they come to know the truth by abiding in his word, they will be set free. Notice, in verse 32, you will know the truth, and you will be set free, both of which are in the future tense, which leads us to all sorts of questions. So let's take for a moment all that Jesus says, all that the Bible tells us, and kind of include it all together. If you jump down to verse 36... We see it again. You will be free indeed. There's a future, but there's a present aspect to that freedom. So if the Son sets you free, there's a present setting free that the Son gives, and there's a future element of how that freedom gets played out. Those who truly believe in Jesus are set free by Jesus because Jesus is the Son that sets us free. That's in the present or in the past for those who have put your trust in Jesus at a previous date. But that freedom that Jesus gives is also an ongoing experience in our future in this world. That we continue to realize what it means to be set free from sin for those who abide in him. Let me give you a couple terms that might help distinguish between these two. First, I think we have salvific freedom, meaning salvation freedom. 
For those who truly believe in Jesus, not just those who claim to, but those who truly believe, they are saved from their sin. They are free for all eternity that they never have to pay the penalty for their sin, right? That's what we believe. That's the gospel message that we share. But I also think that there is a sanctifying freedom, meaning true disciples who in the past put their trust in Jesus and have an eternal guarantee of freedom to not have to pay the penalty for their sin, in the present are released from their slavery to sin. That as we walk with Jesus, as we abide in Jesus' word more and more, we know more of the truth, and we also find ourselves less and less committed to the sins we once were committed to. So I think there's a salvation freedom, but those who have the eternal freedom also are walking in a present freedom from their sin. I think it applies to both. So I think that's Jesus is kind of pointing towards both of these. To abide in his word, to know the truth, to be set free is in the present and in the future. I think this is what Jesus is trying to say. It seems to be the point of what Jesus is trying to say, right? They have claimed to just believed in Jesus. But Jesus says it remains to be seen whether that belief is true or not. If they did believe, they will abide in Jesus' word and will experience freedom from their sin. Their sin now and for all eternity. But if they don't abide in Jesus' word, they don't see that freedom, it proves that they are still in slavery. Which I think is what is proved with their response to Jesus' words here. Right? Jesus just told these Jews that if they abide in his word, they will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. This implies that the Jews need to be set free from something. The underlying concept here is that these Jews who supposedly believed in Jesus are somehow enslaved. So it leads to an objection from them, of course where they deny their slavery. Verse 33. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? First, they make a reference to Abraham thinking that somehow tracing their genealogy back to him proves that they've never been slaves. Which, if they're talking in an earthly realm, historically is just completely false. After Abraham, what happens? Eventually, they're in slavery in Egypt. They're brought under the rule of other nations throughout the entire book of Judges. In the prophetic books, we see three different empires rule over them. And now when Jesus comes, they're being ruled by the Romans. So either they have completely forgotten their own history, even their present reality, if they're thinking in the earthly realm, or... They're saying, we're not referring to an earthly realm, we're referring even to our spiritual realm. We aren't spiritual slaves to anybody. Which would be odd. 
they never seem to be able to understand the spiritual things that Jesus is talking about. It never seems to make sense to them. It would be very odd for them to actually be thinking in the spiritual realm. But even if they are, what they're doing is they're neglecting the spiritual. If they're thinking in the physical realm and saying we've never been slaves, then they're completely ignoring the spiritual. If they're even speaking in the spiritual realm saying we're not slaves to anyone, they're still neglecting the spiritual reality that is true. Because Jesus tells them right next, you are slaves spiritually to sin. And realize the implications of what this means. If you deny your slavery, what else do you deny your need for? freedom. You don't need salvation if you're not slaves. You don't need to be saved by anyone if you're not enslaved. Can you imagine this? Imagine going to someone who is a earthly, physical slave to somebody and saying, I have freedom for you. And they turn and look at you and say, I'm not a slave. I don't need salvation. What a sad reality to be in. Yet that is the opinion of so many people in our world today, isn't it? When the Bible gets rejected as the way that we are to look through, to see our world for what it is, when that gets rejected, we see people looking at their sin in a different way. They now don't look at their sin as something they're enslaved to, something they're to fight against. It's something to be celebrated. We should rejoice. We're not enslaved to anything. This is great. We should be joyful about our sin. So when you come to those people who have rejected the Bible as their means of viewing the world, and you come to them and say, you need to be saved from something you're a slave to, it's instantly offensive. Instantly. Because you're telling someone that they're in oppression, that they're enslaved, and they don't believe that they are. For them, slavery doesn't exist. At least not in the way the Bible defines it. So Jesus goes on to explain what he means to them. They've just denied their slavery, but Jesus goes on to enlighten them what he means by slavery. He makes it clear that there is true spiritual slavery. Verse 34 makes it plain and simple. And notice, when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it means you better be paying closer attention than what you were even a moment ago. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Any person that sins is a slave to sin. Don't get caught up here in the word that's translated in our version as practice. Don't get caught up in that. Literally translated, it says anyone who does sin is a slave to sin. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. So who is that? Who sins? Everybody. Everybody except Jesus Christ himself sins. So what's that mean? Everybody is slaves to sin. 
Every single person is a slave to sin. There's no way out of it. There's no way to deny it. There's no way to be freed from it except by one means that Jesus is about to go on to describe. Verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. The slave may seem to be in the house now, but the slave will not remain forever. Or, literally, notice the word, it says, the slave does not remain. Interesting. It's the same word that Jesus used at the beginning when he said, abide. Right? You abide in Jesus' word means you abide in the house. But he says, whoever abides, whoever's a slave may abide right now, but won't abide forever, won't remain in the house forever. So even if the Jews have the appearance that they're somehow part of the house right now, whether it's by their connection to Abraham or whether it's by their claim to believe in Jesus, if they're still slaves, they will not remain in the house. One day they will be dismissed or rather leave the house because they don't want to abide with the son. But notice who is free. The son is free. Don't misunderstand this. He doesn't say sons. Jesus isn't saying that you need to become from a slave to a son or daughter. Even though we can get how that language might make sense in other parts of the Bible, to be a child of God, right? To be a son or daughter. But that's not what Jesus is saying here because notice what does the son do In the next verse, the Son sets you free. You don't set yourself free. So surely, when it's talking about the Son remaining in the house, you're not the Son. You're not that person. Jesus is that person. Jesus is is separating himself. He's saying, you're the slaves, I'm the Son. You're enslaved, I'm the one who can set you free. True freedom from slavery to sin only happens by the Son. It matches perfectly with everything Jesus has already said and everything that Jesus will say. Right? Remember back, what did Jesus say sets you free before? Now it's the Son that sets you free. What did he say before? The truth will set you free. What does Jesus say of himself in John 14, 6? I am the way the truth, and the life. There's one truth, one way to be freed from your slavery. The only hope to be set free is by the Son setting you free. And that's exactly what Jesus does as he goes to the cross and is resurrected three days later. As he takes on the wrath for our sins, he pays the price for our freedom. God's wrath has now been satisfied so we can be free to spend eternity with him. But not just freedom for eternity, freedom right here, right now this morning. Freedom in which you can actually experience the breaking of the chains of sin in your daily life. This point that Jesus is making can be a tough pill for people to swallow. We live in a world, a country especially, 
that is constantly redefining what freedom is. Right? And we already said people hate the idea that thinking, apart from Jesus, all of us are slaves. None of us are free apart from Jesus. Yet our minds and our hearts, especially in the country we live in, want to think we have a free will. Right? Our will is free to do whatever it wants. But let me ask you just some questions. This isn't to to argue or create controversy, but let me just ask you some questions. If you're a slave to sin, is your will free to do what it wants? Is your will free to choose righteousness if you're a slave to sin? So, in a way, you would be saying, well, I'm a slave to sin, but there's a part of me still that's still not enslaved to that sin. There's a part of me that's still free. How is it that you are able to separate the two? Like I said, I don't say this to create controversy. I say this because I think we need to realize the depths of our slavery. We need to realize the depths of the sin and how it has a hold on our lives. If you think about this. If you were free to choose to not sin before you came to Jesus, why did you need Jesus? If you were free to choose a life without sin before you came to know Jesus, then why would you need Jesus? You don't need him. If you're not a slave, you don't need freedom. But it seems, according to Jesus, we're bound to sin. That before we came to know Jesus, all we chose to do was sin. No matter how good that looks on the external, right? We've talked about this before. Remember, we can do good things, things that have an external appearance of good, but with sinful hearts. I'm not saying you couldn't do anything before that had the appearance of good, but I'm saying the heart behind it was always one of sin. It was always enslaved some way to sin. It's only when we realize the depths of our slavery to sin that our freedom actually becomes significant to us. If you were free to choose this apart from Jesus, then why are you even here? Why do you even need Jesus to choose to not sin if... You can do that on your own anyway. But I also think we need to realize the extent of that freedom. You see, because we redefine it in our world as freedom means you can do whatever you want. Right? You're free to do whatever you please to do. But that's not how the Bible describes it. Paul actually goes a bit further than Jesus does, right? And I'm not saying Jesus doesn't agree with Paul, but I'm saying the way Paul describes it. Romans chapter 6. Let me just read these couple verses to you. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. 
So Paul takes this one step further. He says, your freedom from your sin is not just randomness, where you can free, you're just free to do whatever you want now. Your freedom is narrowed in, but it's something you weren't able to do before. Now you're able to choose righteousness. In fact, you are committed to it. In a fact, in a way, enslaved to righteousness by your obedience to it. But that's something you couldn't do before. When you were a slave to sin, you were not free to choose righteousness. And as the sun sets you free, now you can. Now you can choose a life that is actually pleasing to God. So the question remains, where are the Jews at in all of this? Which one are they? Are they the slaves or are they free? Most of you have probably caught the hints up until this point. Jesus mentions the need to be set free, and these Jews say, we don't need to be set free, we're not even slaves. We've never been slaves. Jesus just described that you can be in the house as a slave, but you will not remain forever. If it's not evident enough yet, I think we see Jesus here exposing their slavery, especially as we come to the final verse. Much like last week, we saw Jesus as the light of the world exposing the darkness of the people around him. Now we see him exposing their slavery. Verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. He begins with a statement that seems to agree with them, right? They said, we're Abraham's offspring. He says, I know that you're Abraham's offspring, but we probably need to take this in the larger context. Next week, Jesus is going to tell them, you're not children of Abraham, though. You might be genealogically his offspring, but you're not children of faith like Abraham was. So even though they might be physically from descending from him, they truly are not Abraham's children. And I think Jesus is just illustrating here that these are the slaves he just talked about. That they may look like right now they are in the house. Right? That they, as being part of Abraham's offspring, as being Jewish people, they look like they're in the house. And now they claim to believe in Jesus. They look like they're in the house, but they are not going to remain forever. In fact, we see these people, we talked about this last week, they don't even make it to the end of chapter 8 before they want to pick up stones and kill Jesus. And that's exactly what he tells them. You might be offspring of Abraham, but you're trying to kill me. If you've been set free from the sun, you don't turn around and try to kill the one that just set you free. But that's what we see them ultimately wanting to do. And I think Jesus is telling them, no, no, you're still slaves. And why do they seek to kill him? We see that last portion here. Because my word finds no place in you. Their hearts are still hard. Their souls are still full of sin. There is no room for Jesus. Remember what Jesus said at the beginning of his true disciples? They abide in his word. And now at the end of the passage, we have a group of people who he says, my word finds no place in you. I think it's quite clear. 
These Jews are still slaves. They have fickle faith. It's not real. They're going to jump right by the end of the passage. They're going to jump right back into the old way of trying to kill Jesus. But not yet. Not yet. At this point in time, they claim belief. Even though they don't abide in Jesus' word, they still claim that they're free. They leaped at the thought of belief because it was convenient for them at the moment, wasn't it? But it ends up not being true belief. Slavery to sin still remains. Salvation is not their reality. Freedom has not been experienced by them. And the subtlety of it is dangerous. It sneaks in on them. They have the genealogy of Abraham. They even said in chapter 7, some of them said, this is the Christ when they look at Jesus. And even just now in our passage this morning, verse 30, they, it says they believed in him. They are claiming belief. Yet they're still not true disciples. Ask yourself the question, which one are you? Does your thoughts about yourself and about Jesus fit better with the way the Jews are thinking about Jesus or with the way Jesus describes how his true disciples think about him? Let me suggest just a couple questions as we kind of finish up this morning to to kind of contemplate this in your own mind. Number one, do you recognize your own slavery to sin? Those with fickle faith deny their slavery. Do you do the same thing? You may not do it by referring to some genealogy to Abraham, but maybe you think, you know what? I'm a pretty good person. Even when I'm not walking with Jesus, I'm pretty good. Or you may see Jesus as just an example, right? Well, I can listen to him and maybe apply things here or there, but I don't really have to commit myself to everything that he says. I don't really have to view him as as the the Savior who gives me my freedom from my slavery to sin. If you think you have freedom without Jesus, you may not have truly experienced freedom yet. Let me say that one more time. If you think you have freedom without Jesus, you may not truly have experienced freedom yet. Number two. Do you find yourself abiding in Jesus' word? Have you grown in your Christian life to have any sort of desire or affection for Scripture itself? Let's use marriage as an example here. If I told Lydia, I love you, but I don't have time for you, how many of you would believe my love for her? Church, imagine these words coming out of someone's mouth. Nobody wants to say these words, but imagine somebody saying these words. How would you respond? I just don't have time for God. If those words came out of somebody's mouth, somebody who claimed to believe in Jesus, what would you think? It sounds pretty appalling, doesn't it? But... 
those are the exact words that are being lived out when anyone says, I can make it through my whole week but never abide in Jesus' word. To think, I'm fine not abiding in the word. I I just don't have time for it. We justify these things in our own mind, but in reality, those words that just sounded appalling to us is exactly what is being lived out if we refuse Jesus' word. God has given us his word that we would abide in it, remain in it, and in knowing the truth of who God is and who Jesus is, we find true freedom from our sin. Which leads to the last question. Not just do you find yourself abiding in Jesus' word, but by abiding in Jesus' word, do you find yourself walking in freedom from your sin? Yes, clearly, all of us, right, this is the whole point, all of us would say, well, I clearly have freedom eternally, right? I I have freedom from my payment for sin for all eternity. I get to spend it with Jesus. But if knowing that freedom has no effect on walking in freedom today in your daily life, then what kind of freedom are you really experiencing? What kind of freedom do you really have if you think, well, I have it in the future, but it doesn't mean anything for me today? Now, maybe you struggled with a certain sin in life before you came to Jesus, and then when you trusted in Jesus, that desire for that sin completely went away, and and you fought against it by the power of the Spirit, and, and it's gone, and that's wonderful. That's a great thing, but it's not just did one sin stop, but has any other freedom from sin occurred? If you began to follow Jesus 10 or 20 years ago, but your anger, your unforgiveness, your greed, your lack of commitment to serve Jesus has remained the same for the last 10 or 20 years, something's wrong. If you're not not experiencing ongoing freedom after walking with Jesus, abiding with Jesus supposedly for 20 years, then then what kind of freedom do you really have? Now, I'm not saying you're going to ever have complete freedom this side of eternity. But if you're not increasing and growing in that freedom and breaking apart from the sin in your life, then what, what's, what kind of freedom is that? What's really going on there? Your promise of eternal freedom shouldn't make you ignore your slavery in this life, but it should stir you to live out the present reality of that eternal freedom. Because it's yours in Christ. Now, I don't say this this morning to make anyone sitting here who has true faith, I don't want your faith to waver. That, that's not the point of asking these questions this morning. But what it, the point of it is, is if there's anybody in here this morning who has fickle faith, it needs to be exposed. These questions are meant to help us realize how incredibly sinful we really are. And when we realize how incredibly sinful we really are, we begin to realize how incredible Jesus really is and the freedom that he gives. When we understand how drastic the difference is. In fact, I would say the Christian life is just one of growing and understanding how terrible you are and how great he is. The further you go in the Christian life, the more you see the difference. It grows in the opposite directions. And the more terrible you understand how you are, the greater he is and the more you want to abide in him. Because you recognize the freedom that he gives. Not just because you recognize the freedom. So ask yourself the question, are you a slave or are you free? If you're sitting here this morning 
and you realize your faith has been one that's fickle, confess that this morning. Repent of that this morning, that you've only trusted in Jesus when it's convenient. And in coming truly to Jesus, you will find yourself abiding in him, knowing the truth and finding true freedom. And then there's those of you this morning who are true disciples this morning. I want to invite you to abide more with Jesus. I think every single one of us, no matter where we're at in our Christian life, could say, I want to abide more with Jesus. So I invite you to abide more with him. Continue abiding with him each and every day. And according to the promises of this verse, these verses, the more you abide with him, the more you find yourself walking in freedom. In true freedom that your chains from sin are broken for all eternity, but are also being broken right here, right now, every day. Let's pray. Father, may we recognize how bound we are to our sin. That even if we are true disciples who will have complete freedom for all eternity with you, that we still wake up every day with a flesh, a sinful flesh, that still wants to chase the things of this world. May we recognize the words of Jesus as truth. That the more we abide with him and in his word, in your word, the more we find freedom. May we not want to just be content living enslaved to our sin. May we actually want to choose righteousness. By your spirit this morning, Father, set our hearts free from our sin. And make us slaves to righteousness. Make our entire lives ones of obedience and commitment to what pleases you. Not what pleases the world or even what pleases ourselves in our own sinful nature. And may we find that living lives that are pleasing to you is actually the greatest satisfaction we could ever have. That in Jesus we truly do never hunger and never thirst again. Help us this morning, God. Help us each day that we live to abide more in Jesus. We ask all this in his name. Amen. As we, they come up to do our song, it's going to be one we haven't sung in a while. In fact, I don't know if we've sang it since I've got here, but it's a kind of a classic one. It's Trust and Obey. So much of what we saw this morning can boil down to those two responses. But they're inseparable. If you don't obey by abiding in Jesus' word, then it's proof that you really don't trust him. 
But if you do abide in Jesus' word, your trust is not a fickle trust, but it's a true trust. And you have true freedom in your sin. So let's remember that this morning. These two things go perfectly together. As you trust in Jesus, you abide in Jesus, and you find yourself obeying Jesus. Let's sing this morning. Five seventy one. Trust and obey. Let's sing the first and last verse.